ask you a question. If I were to say, what is the root problem in Christianity? What is the root issue as to why people have a hard time placing their faith in Christ? How would you answer that question? Sometimes people will say it's a Bible issue. People, they, they don't believe the Bible anymore, so that's why they don't follow Christianity. Some people will say, well, it's a sin problem. All right, honestly, I don't know if I can actually say it's a sin problem because the problem is most of us, we love our sin, right? Like most of us, we, we love our sin. I mean, who has a problem with their sin? No, we like our sin. I think the problem is something else. The problem takes us a little bit deeper. I would say that our problem is not a sin problem. Our problem is a God problem, okay? Because you and I, we are sinners. We love our sin, Okay? That's why when we have sin, that's why we can excuse our sin and why we justify our sin and why we minimize our sin. That is why we are so good at blaming our sin on other people because we love our sin. The problem is God doesn't. The problem is we love our sin, but God doesn't. And God doesn't let us off the hook for our sin. We have this idea, or we know that God is holy and you and I, we're not. We're sinners. We struggle with that. And the deepest problem in the human heart, it's not a sin problem. It's a God problem. Because here's what happens. When we are neck deep in sin, okay, maybe, let's just throw some of these sins out. Maybe you are sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with. Maybe you are watching things that you shouldn't be watching. Maybe, maybe you are lying about your finances because you're ashamed of how you are using your resources. Maybe, maybe for you, maybe you are nursing bitterness where you are refusing because of your pride to let go of something that someone did to you years and years ago and you nurse that seed of bitterness in your heart, okay? This is sin that we do. The issue is not our sin. The issue is God has this expectation that we're going to change. The issue is God, we view God, he's going to sit back there and he's going to have his arms folded and he's going to tap his foot and he's going to wait for us to change. Wait for us to be, fulfill all of his standards. To be exactly what he expects of us to meet his standards. And what happens is when we picture God like that, we try and change. We try and overcome the problems in our life. But it's pretty hard to do it on our own, right? And so as hard as we try, we have a difficult time actually no longer having those improper relationships. We have a hard time not watching the things we shouldn't watch. We hold on to that rage. Why? Because we love our sin. Listen, if you want change in your life, if you want to have victory, if you want to become more like God has asked you to, it's not from dealing with a sin problem. We've got to deal with a God problem. We've got to deal with how we view God and how that changes us. Esther chapter 7 is going to deal with that very specific issue on how we deal with the God problem. So you've already heard Esther 7. Uh, it's going to be uh, what I call the principle of identification. But before we jump in, let me just remind you, give you a little bit of a recap. If you've been gone a couple weeks, let me recap where we are in the story of Esther. We've been looking at Esther for a couple weeks now. Uh, we know that, that Haman is the villain of the story. Haman is the second highest in the kingdom. Uh, he's second only to King Xerxes, who's the most powerful man in the entire world. Haman is his vice president, right? Haman is a guy who loves himself. 
He loves to be honored. He loves to be esteemed. He wants everyone to say, you're so awesome, Haman. And so the king makes this rule and makes it throughout all the nation. And he says, hey, everybody, you need to bow down when Haman comes. When Haman walks into a room, you all need to give him honor. Uh, that makes Haman feel really good about himself, right? Except there's this one guy. There's this one guy whose name is Mordecai who refuses to bow down, refuses to honor Haman the way that Haman wants to be honored. So Haman becomes enraged, and what does he do? He goes to King Xerxes, and he tricks King Xerxes into making a decree that essentially calls for a holocaust, that all of the Jews, all of God's people in the nation of Persia, which equals about 15 million people, he issues the decree that in 11 months from now, they're all going to be killed. This is terrible. That's horrible. All because one guy wouldn't bow before him? And so he tricks, he, he tricks the king into doing this. And, 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 and so this is what's going to happen. Well, uh, it just so happens that uh, Haman is invited to dinner by the king and the queen. And the queen just so happens to be Esther, which again just so happens to be Mordecai's cousin. And it just so happens that Esther is one of God's people as well. But nobody knew it. She was, she was quiet. She didn't let her faith be known. It was, it was a private thing. And so she invites Haman over for dinner. She invites the king over for dinner. And Haman's feeling really good about himself because it's all about honor and prestige and power. He's like, look at me. I'm in with the king and the queen. And as he leaves dinner that night, he's going home. This is where we left off last week. He looks and he sees Mordecai. And guess what Mordecai doesn't do? Mordecai doesn't bow again. And Haman is enraged. He's enraged. And he's going to go and, and figure out how he can murder Mordecai before the 11 months passes. Well, the next morning, Haman goes to King Xerxes. He's going to ask for permission to have Mordecai killed. But the king has another thing on his mind. The king says, hey, Haman, I got a question for you before you say whatever else. Haman, what do you think I should do for someone that I want to honor? Like somebody who's really awesome. What should I do? And Haman's like, man, there's no one else to that the king would honor than other than me, right? Like I'm the bomb.com. Like I'm the stuff. And so Haman says, here's what you should do, king. You should give him your royal robes. You should put him on your royal horse, you know, the one with the crown on it. You need to put him on, a, on your Rolls Royce. We'll just call it a Rolls Royce, all right? You need to let him pretend he's you. And then you need to take one of your mo most high officials you need to parade him around town and have him shout out, this is what happens when you're awesome. And the king's like, cool, go do that for Mordecai. Ah, now Haman has to go and do that exact thing for his arch enemy, Mordecai. Goes on all day long, goes through town, has his parade. Haman's feeling pretty bad about himself now. He goes home and he complains. Goes home, he's complaining to his wife. He's complaining to his friends. And that's exactly where our story picks up today in chapter 6, verse 14. It says, while he was still talking, he's still complaining, the eunuchs arrived and they take him to the banquet. This was the second dinner that he was going to have with the king and queen. And there's, there's this kind of this anticipation as you read the story where you're kind of like, Man, he's just complaining about how bad he has it. And all of a sudden, the eunuchs arrive. You ever been in that situation where you're busy, you're focused, and all of a sudden, you have to go and do something else? Like, you kind of have this idea, well, you're, you're not ready to go. You're mentally not prepared. And you kind of have this idea with Haman. He's just not quite there yet. 
So he goes to dinner, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7. He goes to dinner. He has dinner with the king and the queen. And after dinner, they're sitting back. They're drinking some iced tea uh, or wine, whatever you prefer. And, and the king says, hey, listen, Esther, what is your wish? What is your request? What is it you want from me? Because whatever you want, listen, I, I'm in a generous mood. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. This is the third time that the king has made this uh, known to Esther. Remember the first time was when Esther, uh, she went into the king's presence, which was forbidden. You weren't allowed to go into the king's presence unless you were invited. And if you did, you could suffer the death penalty. And so she approaches the king. She gets permission finally. And the king says, Esther, honey, you're my wife. What is it you want? And Esther just doesn't feel like it's the right time. She says, you know, uh, I'm going to just ask you if you want to come to dinner tonight. And so they do that. They have dinner the first time. And again, the king says, hey, hey, what is it you want? Up to half my kingdom. It's yours. What do you want? And Esther's like, man, I just, it's not the right time. Why don't you come to dinner again? Refuses. What, what is it she wants? We understood that Esther being one of God's people as well as being the king's wife, she was in the perfect spot to be a mediator to talk to the king on behalf of God's people and to say, hey, king, please don't kill my people. Please don't kill God's people. That would include me. But she doesn't do that. Two times the king asks, what do you want? I'll give you half of my kingdom. And two times she says, no, I can't do this. Listen, she, the thing I love about Esther, and maybe for some of you this, this connects with you, where maybe, maybe like you've said you're a Christian, but Maybe there isn't a lot of evidence of your faith. Maybe you haven't really lived for him. Esther made a decision. She said, you know what? I'm going to identify with God's people. And you see her now. She's growing. She, in this instance, she is sensing God's leading. She is sensing when God is leading her to go. She's not running ahead of God. She's, she's growing. She knew when to act, and she knew when to wait. Let me ask you this morning. Are you sensitive to God's leading in your own life? Do you have the ability to know when God is leading you, when God is saying go, and when God is saying hold on. Let me ask you, in your life, do you know when to speak and do you know when to listen? Do you know when to move and when to wait? In fact, when I was a younger leader, one of the things I would do is I'd go to these community meetings, and there would be all these religious leaders that would come together, and we'd have these meetings. And it was interesting because as a young leader, what did I think my responsibility was? Well, I'm a leader. I have to speak. I have to make my voice heard. And so it's interesting. You see all these young leaders in these big meetings, and all these young leaders, man, they're just speaking to hear their own voice. Look, I'm a leader. I have something to say. And then I started realizing, man, if I'm going to grow as a leader, I should probably look at some older, more mature, and wiser leaders. And I started watching these older, mature, wiser leaders. And they'd come into these meetings. You know what they would do? They would sit back and they would listen. They would just sit back. And every once in a while, they'd have these dingers that would just come out. And you're like, man, that's so good. So much better than what I came up with. Because there's this ability, when you are growing with God, you have this ability to kind of not have to run ahead of God. You don't have to speak just to have your voice heard. You have this ability to sense God's leading. To sense, hey, God is saying, I want you to go. God is saying, I want you to stay. God is saying, I want you to wait. You have this ability when you are, are growing in a relationship with God which is important to be able to sense God's leading because what happens is too often we confuse our will 
or maybe I should say our wants, with God's will, right? Or when we say, well, maybe this is what God's will is for me, then I'm like, well, this is really what I want in life, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. What can happen is, is we can run out ahead of God. Where God has a plan and a purpose, he's got a direction for you. And if you aren't, if you aren't at the spot that you can sense his leading, you can run out ahead of God and create all sorts of problems for yourself. There's a story in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And God had promised them, hey, I'm going to give you a baby. I'm going to give you a baby. And this baby, your, your family, your generations, they're going to become great and mighty. And so Abraham and Sarah are like, yeah, we're going to have a baby. And they wait 10 years. 10 years and no baby. They're old now. They're like, they're like old. They're in their 70s. And they're like, God, you said you were going to do this. They're like, I know, we'll help you out, God. God, you need our help. So Abraham and Sarah decide, hey, Sarah has a servant named Hagar. So Abraham, why don't you go have a baby with Hagar? That way, we'll have this baby. Well, it didn't work out so well for them. And Sarah and Hagar had issues for the rest of their lives and created this conflict because they tried to run out ahead of God. And if they just would have waited... Man, God did something beautiful. God gave them a baby when they were in their 90s. That's crazy. Like, I'm in my 30s, and I'm like, having another baby would be crazy. But, hey, that's what happened. And so the issue is, are you sensitive to God's leading in your life? Or are you too busy thinking about what you want and your plans and your will that you're running ahead of God, creating problems for you in your life? Listen, what are the opportunities that you have in front of you? What are the decisions that you need to be making the next season of life? Listen, it might be hard, but I would encourage you to consider, to consider if you are pursuing your will or if you are actually pursuing God's will. If you're allowing God to speak into it and allowing God to guide you. Because today, perhaps the wisdom of Esther is what you need to hear. That Esther had the wisdom to know, I need to wait and not run out ahead of God. So Esther waits. Twice the king makes this request. And on the third time, finally, she's trusted God's leading and finally the time is right. So verse 3, here's her request. She says, listen, king, if I have found favor in your sight, and if it pleases the king, again, I love, I love the honor and the respect in which she communicates with the king he's not a guy who deserves honor he's not a very good man but she speaks and honors him in a way uh, that that is honoring something for probably many of us in this room to to learn from she speaks from this way and here's her request she says let my life be granted me for my wish and people for my request just save my life save god's people she says for verse four for we have been sold again uh, what is this reference to them being sold? If you remember the decree or the, the request that Haman had of the king, Haman said, hey, listen, king, if you let me kill all these 15 million people, like all, all pillage from them and all the profit I make from them, I'll give you uh, uh, two-thirds of your annual revenue. I'll give you a bunch of money if you let me do this. King's like, sure. So that's what it's referring to in, when it says sold. And she says, king, for we have been sold. 
I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, men, I would have been silent, king, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. And what you see in Esther is this is what it looks like for us to be as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. She is, is delicate, delicate, delicately, I speak for a living, she's delicately accusing Haman at the same time without trying to incriminate the king. Because who had the final say on the whole decree? The king. The king's the number one in charge. And so she's trying to be very careful. She doesn't want to imply, hey, king, you're guilty of this. She wants it to fall on Haman. And so she speaks to the king's well-being. She says, listen, listen, king. If me and God's people, if we were just sold as slaves, like if we were slaves, like God, I wouldn't have said anything about it. I would have been quiet because that would have had a benefit to you. But listen, king, if this plan goes out and we all die, there's a disadvantage to you, which is why I'm saying something. Because you would lose the revenue from our taxes and from all that we would do for you. It would be a greater loss to you. In fact, I love this tactic that uh, Esther uses. Uh, if you've been around church, there's a story in the Old Testament in the book of, uh, uh, the book of Samuel where uh, David has been in sin with Bathsheba. He went and had an affair on his wife. Messy story. And there's a prophet by the name of Nathan, and Nathan confronts David. Remember how Nathan did it? He told a story. He didn't mention any names. He didn't have any names. He just said, let me tell you the story. And he, he, he uh, uh, arouses the anger and the indignation of David. So David gets fired up. And then Nathan's like, oh yeah, that man is you. And this is kind of what Esther does. She arouses his anger and his indignation. Listen, someone wants to kill me and my people. King, that's horrible. And so King's getting angry. He's mad. And he's like, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Because if you assault the queen, that's an assault on the king as well, right? Honest, King is not a very good husband. Like we saw two weeks ago, like it, they lived in the same palace, but they hadn't seen each other in 30 days. Like he's not a very good husband. He doesn't love his wife. He doesn't cherish her. He doesn't protect her. But... His wife is an extension of his kingship. And if you plot, and a plot against her, it also undermines him. And so he's, he's angry, and he says, who is this bum? Who's this guy? Let's deal with it. Verse 5. Again, remember how Esther has had all these honor and reverence and speaking very nicely. All of that's out the window. And you see this, 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 this verse where, where she gives way to this raw, emotional, climatic line in verse 5. She says, who has done it? A foe and an enemy, that wicked Haman. Like, what a bad day for Haman, right? Like, what a bad day for Haman. You wake up, and you've got to take your arch enemy around a parade saying, look how awesome he is. And now, your evil plot is being revealed in front of the king. What a bad day for him. And it just so happens by coincidence that your evil plot against God's people just happens to include Esther, because Esther is by coincidence, one of God's people. In fact, let me just say this. As Christians, one of the things we need to do is coincidence should not be a word in our vocabulary. You should just strike that word out of your vocabulary. Lucky, take that word out of your vocabulary. Because if we understand what Esther is teaching us, we can replace the word coincidence and lucky with the providence of God. 
The providence of God means that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things, and he is ruling in the details of our lives. He is ruling over all peoples, all places, and all times. He's ruling in such a way that it benefits his good, now our good, and his glory. That is what the sovereignty of God means, the providence of God. And so when you look at your life and you say, well, what a coincidence. No, maybe God is leading and speaking into that. So Esther, she implies, hey, Haman did this. Haman made this decree that's going to kill me and my people. And the king's angry. He's mad. He's enraged. He's filled with wrath. And he goes outside into the garden. He needs to have a couple minutes just to, to think about what he's going to do. Because honestly, here's what he's got to wrestle with. Like, he's thinking, how can I punish Haman for a plot that ultimately I'm responsible for? How can I punish this guy, this guy for a plot that, that, that I approved myself? The king, by punishing Haman, wouldn't he also have to admit his own responsibility? And wouldn't he lose face in front of all the people? So he's wrestling, man, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know. How can I punish Haman for this? He's outside. Inside, Haman, he's terrified. He's terrified. And so he begins to, to beg Esther for his life. He's begging Esther. Here's what we know about King Xerxes, okay? Xerxes, in this story, he's never made a decision for himself. He always has these really dumb people around him who are giving him advice and saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. Listen, who are the people you listen to advice from? Are they the wise people? Xerxes filled himself with all sorts of bad people, and they're giving him bad advice. And so Haman realizes, hey, the king can't make any decisions for himself. And so he's bagging Esther. Listen, the king will listen to you. Give him some advice about saving my life. And while pleading, verse 8, Haman's pleading before the, king, the queen. In verse 8, the king walks in, and by coincidence, no, I, I mean by providence, Haman slips and he falls on the couch with the queen. There was a rule back in that day that when the queen sits on the couch, she gets the couch to herself, right? Teenage boys, the same rule applies with teenage girls, all right? Teenage girl sits on the couch, she gets the couch to herself, you go sit somewhere else, all right? And all the, parent, all the dads with teenage daughters said, amen, right? The actual law was that if you were in the presence of the queen, you had to be within seven steps away. You couldn't be that close to the queen. And so the king walks in, and Haman falls before the queen, and it doesn't look very good in that moment. Now, the text tells us Haman wasn't trying to attack her, but his proximity of being that close to the queen was, was close enough to make the charges stick. There was enough evidence for Xerxes to say, that's how I can get rid of Haman and save his face. So he can accuse Haman of doing something he didn't do. You know, you know what the ironic thing of this whole story is? Haman went to the king and falsely accused God's people of, of treason. He said, king, listen, you should kill these people because they don't obey all your rules. They're, they're, they're tre that's treason. And now what is Haman being accused of? Falsely being accused of treason before the king. You see the irony? The same thing he tried to pull on them is what he's pull, uh, happening to him. So verse 9, it says there's a servant by the name of Harbona. And Harbona says, hey, you know what, king? Uh, 
Mordecai had built this gallows that was 75 feet tall. And the king says, great, let's crucify him on those gallows. Let's kill him. And that's what happens to Haman. And the last phrase says that the king's wrath was abated. He had Haman killed, and the wrath, his anger was, was fulfilled in having Haman killed. It's an interesting chapter. And I want to give you just two points of application, two things that we can learn and take away from this chapter. Number one, I want us to continue to wrestle and understand all about the sovereignty of God. And this is a theme throughout the entire book of Esther, the sovereignty of God, that, that God is in control of all things. In the theological world, there, there kind of comes two perspectives. The first perspective is uh, uh, using various scriptures that emphasize that God is in control of all things. That God is in charge, that, that, that God works things out, that God takes care of all of the details, that God works through the details, that God has everything handled in our world and in our situation and in our lives. Okay? That's the first perspective. The second perspective, using other scriptures, highlights human responsibility. That says, you and I, we need to speak, we need to act, we need to serve, we need to give, we need to try, we need to help, we need to care, we need to do our part. So you kind of have these, these two sides of the ball here. Where is God in control or are we in control? Which is the, 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 the thing? And I'll be honest. Like when I first started trying to figure out what it looks like for me to be a pastor, try to figure out what it looked like for me to teach the Bible, I struggled understanding the sovereignty of God. I, I struggled with it. That if, if God is in control, well, what about, what about human responsibility? What about our free will? What about the choices we make? If God is in control, then it doesn't matter what choice I make, Right? And I began to really struggle with that, where, where if, if God is in control and, and what I do doesn't matter, then how does God not become this distant deity who's just going to pull whatever strings he wants to pull? It doesn't matter what I do. He's just going to do his thing. How, how does he not just... And I struggle with how do I not become indifferent? If what I do doesn't matter, then how do I not become indifferent to say, well, God's just going to do what he's going to do? And what I've had to come to realize as I study the sovereignty of God, that rather than being frightened by God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty begins to comfort me. Because if God alone is good, if he alone is God and all he does is good, then how can his sovereignty, his, the fact that he's in control, shouldn't that comfort me? If he is God alone and I'm not, if he does everything good, shouldn't that comfort us? And knowing that he is working things out. Listen, it doesn't take away human responsibility. Esther, she has a vital part in the story. She has an important part in the story. In our life, God's sovereignty and our, our, our responsibility, they work together like pedals on a bike. Where God does his part and he advises us to do our part. And they work together like this. But ultimately, God's sovereignty is going to win. In fact, this is what Mordecai said earlier. He said, listen, Esther, God has placed you in this moment for such a time as this, that you can do your part and God can use you. But if you remember what Mordecai said, he said, but if you don't, God will win some other way. And that's what we need to understand is God invites us to be a part of the story, but he's still going to win. His plans are not going to fail. He's still in control. Listen, as you think about the sovereignty of God, man, are you growing in your understanding of that? 
Are you allowing God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in control, are you allowing it to encourage you, to build up your faith, to build up your confidence in him? Because I'll tell you what, as I've wrestled with understanding the sovereignty of God, it doesn't mean I always understand it. I don't. In fact, we say the sovereignty of God, the providence of God is best read backwards. You don't usually understand what God is doing until you get through the situation, and then you can look back and say, oh, okay, God, now I see what you were doing here. I didn't understand it in the middle. Does that mean that when I'm going through my life, does that mean I always understand the sovereignty of God? No, I don't. I'm like most people. Where I'm in a situation and I, I have this ability to occasionally rush judgment. I have this ability where things feel out of control and I begin to panic. Don't we all do that? And so I go through situations in life and I'm beginning to panic and I, and I lose sight of the fact and I forget that God is in control. In fact, there's often times when I'm going through the middle of a situation, I'm kind of like, God, you are so incredibly slow. God, would you please hurry things along? I don't like being in the middle of this turmoil. I'd rather move to where things are a little bit more comfortable. But I'll be honest, if things calm down, as I come to more reasonable moments, as I find my emotions get under control, oftentimes I can look back and see exactly what God was trying to do through those hard situations. And I shouldn't be, but I'm often surprised at the beautiful story that God creates in the fabric of my life. I think my life would probably be a lot calmer if I just would trust his providence. If I would just trust in the middle of the hard times, listen, God is still in control. God is working things out. I may not understand it right now, but he's there. He's present. He has a purpose. So I hope as you read through this story, I hope you begin to just continue to see the, the sovereignty of God and begin to trust that. Begin to understand, listen, God, I don't understand it right now. But God, I know you are here. I know you are working. Second thing I want you to see in Esther chapter 7 is I want you to see this uh, thing that I call the principle of identification. Okay? Look again at the, the statement that Esther made. Verse 3, she said, King, if I have found favor in your sight, and if it pleases the king, she says, let my life be granted, uh, or... <laughs> Uh, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. In order for Esther to save her people, she actually had to identify with the people who were under a death sentence. Again, the king Xerxes, Haman, neither one of them knew that Esther was one of God's people. They just they didn't know. She, she didn't live her faith in a way that people would actually know. She was full of compromise. And so here she makes a statement and says, listen, these are my people. I am identifying with them. I am asking, where's the list of the people that are going to be killed for being one of God's people? Because I'm going to take a pen and I'm going to write my name on that list, King. She identified with being one of God's people. Listen, have you done that? Have you identified with God's people? You know, we have this idea that our faith is all about a, a personal relationship with God. And all we have to do is believe in him. And yes, that's true, but our faith is not solely personal. Because when you are in a relationship with God, you are adopted into his family. You understand that? That, that you're not just one of God's children by nature of being birthed. You actually have to be adopted into the family of God. 
Listen, when I was a little baby, I was two years old, I got adopted. I got adopted and I was given a new mom and a new dad. And guess what came along with that mom and dad? A brother and a sister. I was given, adopted into a family. Listen, when you are adopted into the family of God, not only do you get him, but you get your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. You become a part of the family of God. I know, sometimes we have this idea, well, well, my faith is personal. It's just between me and God. I don't, I don't really want to do the church. You know, the church is full of, of broken, imperfect people. It is. Every one of us is here. You know, I don't want to be under authority. I'd want it to be just me and Jesus. Listen, I've read the Bible a few times, and that kind of Christianity is not in there. I always see it coming back to God's people. Always comes back to God's people. And that's what Esther identifies with. Listen, have you actually identified with God's people? It is an honor and a privilege to be a part of the church, to be a part of the people of God. Listen, it's not perfect. It's not. But there's a tremendous beauty to, to plugging in and identifying with the local church, with the people of God. Listen, I know there are some of you in here, and you're like, hey, there was a time when I was both feet in, plugged into the church, engaged with the people of God, and now I'm kind of standing on the outside, just kind of watching. Things got messy. Listen, let me encourage you. Identify. Take ownership. This is your people right here. Jump in. There's a benefit to you. And there's a benefit to us when you plug in. So here's this incredible story where Esther, she says, I'm going to identify with the people of God. And listen, we're going to see this next week. That as she identifies with the people of God, it's going to lead to the rescue of God's people. That they're saved from this destruction. They're saved from it. This beautiful of the story is I want you to imagine. I want you just to imagine. Imagine King Xerxes is there. And he says, hey, that Haman, I want you to take him. I want you to, to crucify him on the gallows. Picture that. And then I want you to picture Esther. Imagine if she walked over to Haman. Imagine she said, listen, Haman. Haman, I forgive you. Haman, I love you. King, I'm going to take Haman's place. I'll be crucified for him. I'll be crucified for my enemy so that he can become one of God's people. And he can take my place. Wouldn't that be an amazing story if that happened? Do you realize that's what Jesus has done for us? That here in the story of Esther, it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is where I want you to come back to think about uh, the introduction. That we don't have a sin problem, we have a God problem. You know what the solution to the God problem is? Understanding the gospel. That when you and I, when we realize what God has done for us, that in his, his marvelous love, that he comes down, that he becomes one of us in Jesus, that he identifies with us. Do you understand that God has done that? In Jesus, he identifies with us. 
He identifies with sinners like you and I, and he stands in solidarity with us. And he goes to the cross, and he dies on the cross to satisfy the condemnation, the judgment, and the wrath that our sin deserves. When you understand that God did that in Jesus, that he identified with us, when you grasp that, it changes everything. It changes everything. Because you begin to be gripped by, by the grace of God, by the love of God. You, don't, you no longer think like you once did. Where instead of loving sin, but struggling with this God problem, what happens is because of the gospel, we can start to love God. We love God more than we love our sin. We're only left to struggle with this sin problem thing. And this is the very nature of what Christianity is all about. Now when, when the glory of God and when the grace of God through the gospel, when it illuminates our natural darkness, it leaves us to understand that God sent Jesus to the cross to free us from that condemnation, to take our place, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we can be free from that God problem. So no longer is God sitting in the corner with his arms folded, waiting for us to get better, waiting for us to improve, waiting for us to change. Now we see God in Jesus Christ, that he has come to be with us, to identify with us, that God sent his son to satisfy the punishment that we deserve so we can have a relationship with him, so we can be part of his family. And only then, only then will we understand what Jesus has done for us. Only then do we move from loving sin and struggling with this God who we think is looking for judgment. Only then do we begin to be free to love God, just be left struggling with the sin. And when we understand that it changes everything, it changes how we live, it changes how we see ourselves, it changes our, our motivation. Where no longer is it, now I need to be good enough to satisfy God. Now I can just love Him because He's what He's done for me. Because He's identified with me. He's made a way for me to have a relationship with Him. Let me ask you this morning, which of these best describes you? Do you love sin but wrestle with the God problem? Do you love your sin but worry because you know God's standing here like this watching over you? You better change. You better do what I expect of you. Or do you love God but struggle through the sin problem? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is love. Not that we have loved God. No, we love sin. We don't love God. We love sin. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. Listen, everything, everything's already been done for you to deal with your God problem. Everything has been done once and for all. All we need to do is trust Jesus as our Savior. 
And that is a principle of identification. That God in Jesus chose to identify with sinners. To take the punishment that we deserved so we can be a part of the family of God. It's a beautiful story. We pray.